everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the podcast, The Shift. I'm Shay Candish, the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association's General Secretary and the host of this show. Medicinal cannabis is a controversial and rapidly developing space in medical science. As nurses and midwives, it's really important that we're across developments in this space, both in terms of patient safety and in our roles as patient advocates. While medicinal cannabis is largely inaccessible in Australia and legislation is really lagging behind our international counterparts, other countries have been using medicinal cannabis for patient treatments for years. Today, I'm joined by a registered nurse and cannabis researcher from one of these countries, Linda Bowneves. Linda's an RN and has a PhD from the University of Manitoba in Canada. She's researched medicinal cannabis and alternative therapies for decades, and she joins me today to share her insights in this space. Welcome to the show, Linda. Thanks, Jay. Excited to be here. It's so lovely to have you. So uh, the thing that intrigues me initially is you are a nurse doctor. Can you please explain what that is? <laughs> I like to say that I'm a doctor nurse. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I, I have a, my registered nurse. I got a bachelor's of nursing from the University of Manitoba, as you mentioned. Um, I then did a master's because I was really interested in doing research. And mm-hmm. then I thought I really want to be able to lead research studies So I went to the University of British Columbia in Vancouver and I got my PhD in nursing, which basically means um, I work really hard and I get to do research and I get to teach the next generation uh, of nurses and researchers. So that's what a, a PhD is all about. That sounds like really satisfying work to kind of get to study the thing that you're interested in and then also teach other people about it. Do you get a lot of satisfaction out of it? Totally. Um, I have a lot of autonomy in my job, which I love. And I get to pursue questions that kind of puzzle me or other people are asking me. Uh, And I do feel very fortunate that I've been able to to shift practice, to affect policy through my research. Uh, And as I said, train the next generation of nurses, instructors, as well as researchers. Yeah, nice. That sounds fantastic. So um, your particular area of interest is around medicinal cannabis. Can you talk to Mm -hmm. me a bit about how you sort of fell into this area of research and a bit of an overview of what you've learned? Sure. So I always call myself an accidental uh, cannabis researcher because it was totally by accident that I kind of fell into this field. Uh, as you mentioned, I most of my research for the past 20 years has focused on the use of complementary, integrative, and alternative therapies, uh, mainly by people living with cancer. So I've been very interested in any type of medicine that's on the margins. Mm-hmm. So things like natural health products, uh, people going to like a naturopath or a chiropractor, and then helping patients and families make informed decisions based on the latest evidence. Um, And because I was interested in that kind of, you know, margin medicine, uh, I had someone randomly approach me in a hallway and said, someone said I need to talk to you because nobody will speak to me about my research interests. Uh, And it was an individual that was working at one of our compassion clubs uh, in Vancouver at the time. And those are an illegal source of cannabis for people living uh, with health conditions. And she wanted to do research on on their consumers' experiences of accessing medical cannabis and using it. So I ended up um, saying I would speak to her about it. There was a lot of overlap uh, with natural health products uh, in terms of just the struggles of researching it, the stigma surrounding it, um, and people's preferences to use what they perceive to be a more natural uh, form of medicine. So can I just uh, jump did, in there? The the, yeah. the um the you called them was it 
compassion clubs compassion clubs talk to me about that so how long ago was this how did that come about you know what type of um what type of patients are going to receive treatment in those sorts of areas right so um compassion clubs probably arose about 25 years ago uh in various parts of canada um some of them arose before medical cannabis was even legal in Canada. So this was, you know, way back in the early, um, late 1990s. Uh, and then some arose after the legalization of medical cannabis, when the only source was one licensed producer that the government of Canada ran uh, in a mine underground, um, <laughs> growing cannabis that was really poor quality. Wow. Uh, and as a consequence, um, a lot of people living with HIV, AIDS, cancer, chronic pain, fibromyalgia, a lot of chronic health conditions that weren't being well addressed by conventional medicine were seeking to use cannabis and wanted to have product that was high quality, that hadn't been irradiated, didn't have pesticides and insecticides on it. Uh, and they could have access to things like oils, uh, edibles, uh, not just dried uh, flour. Um, and so these compassion clubs kind of arose in the community by advocates that recognized that people were having to go to a street source through dealers mm. to access their cannabis, um, or they were growing it illegally and getting arrested. Mm. Um, and so these compassion clubs kind of arose to provide people more, uh, more product, more variety of product but also to provide a community and a source of education and information for people that wanted to know how to use medical cannabis safely. Mm. Um, so these were illegal. Some were subject to being raided by police on a regular basis. Oh, that's terrible. And in some places, the police turned a blind eye because they recognized that they were feeling, filling a gap, trying to provide this product safely. Uh, and they weren't using the product, diverting it into the recreational market. It was very much uh, constructed within uh, the medical realm. Mm -hmm. And so some of those compassion clubs have now slowly segued into being licensed producers uh, and are actually legal. And others have now disappeared as our recreational market has increased in Canada. And now we have a lot more um, cannabis products you know, for, for everyone uh, to, to consume and to use. I just think it's fascinating. You know, we have something sort of similar here, uh, the injecting clinics that, that opened up, you know, um, a few decades yeah. ago. I think when you see unsafe behaviours sort of driving this, this practice um, and there's a bunch of medical professionals that say, hang on, we can do better here. Uh, yeah. And they're prepared to go and kind of create these environments, even if it's an underground kind of version of it uh, in the first instances. I think it says a lot about what healthcare professionals are prepared to do to help people? It, the cannabis community would not be where it is right now if it hadn't been for those people that kind of put their necks on the line mm. uh, and weren't so driven by trying to, to help patients and their mm. families. Um, you know, we did interviews with people that were part of that compassion club. And I asked them a question that just said, cannabis is, and overwhelmingly it was cannabis is my life. Cannabis is my survival. It was all about just quality of life and being able to engage in society in a normal way uh, mm -hmm. that they couldn't do if, if cannabis hadn't been available to them. So it, it really, I think that study and being part of that kind of compassion club journey, it, it really kind of made me 
really want to get into this area and, and provide a nursing lens to it mm. uh, and, and to understand it more. Because as a nurse, I received no education about cannabis in my, my undergrad program or my graduate program. So, Yeah, look, and we were talking earlier, I think here in Australia, we're just right at the cusp of understanding what this uh, what cannabis can do and what it could look like here in Australia and some really um, early policy discussions. Um, and most people I talk to generally are just really curious or are completely clueless about what sort of exists and what it could mean. So can you take us through a bit about what you've learned over your um, past years of research? Yeah, so most of my research um, has been less kind of doing clinical trials and, and understanding you know, its effectiveness and safety Mine has been really driven from the, the patient, the family perspective. So understanding their experience of, of, of using it, their experience of trying to access it, trying to gain authorization from their physician or their nurse practitioner. Um, and I've also been really interested in understanding the nurse's perspective around it. So I think overwhelmingly from the, the patient and family perspective is that this is a very stigmatized medicine. Uh, they often struggle to have the healthcare system and, and healthcare professionals treat them respectfully uh, to honor their requests to, to use it. Um, often their stories are just framed as being anecdotal and, and are dismissed. Um, and it's a struggle for people mm -hmm. to gain access. It. It's, it's much easier in Canada now because we have a recreational market that people can access. But for people that still want to get medical authorization, they can still really struggle with that. And there's real inequities for people living in rural and remote communities, you know, people that are low income, people that perhaps aren't as well educated and understand the system. So that has been a pervasive story that we're hearing. We've just finished doing a national survey of Canadians using medical cannabis since legalization. Um, and what we're hearing is that, that they are finding that the cost is, is still too expensive. Um, we How have now expensive is it? What talk it us really through varies what? depending on the product. Okay. Um, you know, the flower can range anything from you know five dollars a gram all the way up to thirty dollars a gram, and some people are using up to ten grams a day. Right. Um, we've heard people say I'm using fifty dollars a month, but we've also had people tell us they're using two thousand dollars a month. Wow. And that's often not covered. So mm. still very inaccessible, still very expensive, and and still a struggle to be able to incorporate it actually into their healthcare plan. We're actually doing another study right now looking at its use in long-term care facilities for people you know, that are living with dementia or living with spinal cord injuries or traumatic brain injuries and needing long-term care. Um, and we were just told that the culture of our, of our long-term care facilities will not support cannabis use. You know, that even though this is people's homes, they have to be the ones to order it. They have to be the ones to, to receive it. They have to be the ones to give it to themselves. And if you're living with dementia or, you know, or a quadriplegic, that means that you're not, a, you're not able to access it. Mm -hmm. So lots of barriers. Um, from the nursing perspective, we've done some national studies with our nurse practitioner community. Um, and they are allowed to authorize medical cannabis in Canada. Um, and then talking to some of our undergraduates, uh, overwhelmingly, they don't get any education about it. They see huge gaps in their knowledge. They don't feel comfortable 
providing care related to medical cannabis because of their lack of knowledge. Um, and there's a lot of confusion about the policies and the regulations, if they're even aware of them. Uh, and so for many of them, they're just like, I don't want to, I don't want to be involved. And again, it means that patients and families are often kind of left then to their own devices um, to try to use cannabis, to access it. Uh, and it can be a real struggle, again, for, for often groups that have, you know, inequalities that already exist. And so I just want to kind of bring it uh, for a comparison, I suppose, to the Australian context, you know, when we see people who have got really complex pain needs, they're often reviewed by a pain team, um, you know, a specialized consultant and maybe some advanced care practitioners um, to help kind of diagnose and develop interventions. Uh, whatever your equivalent is, would that be, um, you know, is is medicinal cannabis ca cannabis being offered by those types of groups in mainstream healthcare, or is it still something that patients are having to kind of research and um, understand themselves and then go and seek a you know, medical practitioner that's prepared to work with them around it? You know, it depends on the setting and it depends on the practitioner. Um, you know, in certain facilities across Canada, we have people that have training in medical cannabis. They have a research program in it. Um, you know, their specialty is chronic pain. And so you often find in those settings, there's more openness to have that conversation. And it's often considered to be then a third line uh, treatment. Mm -hmm. um, there's been dialogue when we talk uh, about our pain guidelines related to chronic pain, about moving it further up so that it's not a fourth line, third line treatment that maybe we should be using it before opioids. Um, but the biggest struggle is always people feel there isn't sufficient evidence. Uh, and they're often looking for evidence that, you know, has been developed through a clinical trial that basically mirrors how you would do a clinical trial with a, with a pharmaceutical. And because cannabis is a plant-based product, there's a lot more intricacies to it in, in some ways than doing a simple pharmaceutical trial. So it, we're really in that point where we need more evidence but that evidence, that, that research has to be tailored to the uniqueness of doing cannabis. And, and so at that point, we're, we're struggling, you know, to get the health, the chronic pain teams, the healthcare teams to be willing to go down that road and use cannabis without that evidence, the type of evidence that they're used to seeing. So just talking, yeah. So talking that through a bit more, is it because, you know, when we're looking at a clinical trial of endone or whatever your equivalent opioid is, we can say very clearly there are 10 milligrams of opioid in this. Uh, whereas a plant-based product, it's a lot harder to determine precisely what the active ingredient amount is and how effective it is and that kind of thing. So we, we're not really able to compare apples and apples. Is that the issue? That's definitely part of it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, with, with, with cannabis, you know, products, they can have over 200 cannabinoids. So we may be interested in, in THC and CBD, which are the popular cannabinoids, but there's, you know, 189 other ones that might be varying in terms of how much is in that product. Um, we have terpenes that might vary as well that may have a health effect. So it's trying to standardize all of those elements is, incredibly challenging being a plant it's when it's harvested what part of the plant is used how it's how it's produced um, and it is a real struggle when people um, with certain health conditions are preferring to use it through an inhaled route how do we actually you know create a device that we know exactly 
how much they're getting through an inhaled route, whereas mm. something like a pill is, is a lot easier. Mm. Um, one of the other huge challenges is if you're focusing on a cannabis product that has THC, which can have that psychoactive effect or make you feel high, is it's hard to blind people to whether they're getting a placebo sugar mm. pill or getting the actual cannabis, because if they're not naive to using it, they'll actually say, well, I'm not feeling anything. So I know I, I, I didn't get the active ingredient. So mm. that's another challenge that we have uh, with medical cannabis trials. So that's really interesting. Like I can appreciate that that's incredibly complex, but also the research overwhelmingly demonstrates that patients that have it demonstrate and talk about feeling better don't they? And that it has this kind of um, incredible impact from the sort of more subjective type of um, evidence. Most definitely. Um, and, you know, when, when you do that patient-centered, you know, research, when you have patient-reported outcomes, people tell us, you know, their pain's better controlled. They tell us that they're less, you know, maybe feeling less anxious, fatigued, uh, nauseous, you know, all of those kind of symptoms that can be very subjective. Mm. Um, the other thing that's been, you know, really interesting um, is, you know, when we see the trials that have been done, a lot of them have been done with pharmaceutical forms. So, you know, they'll do something like Nabilone, which I'm sure a lot of, you know, your listeners have heard of, and that's a, a THC uh, pharmaceutical. Um, and it's very potent. And so often when you see those trials, you know, people will, will say, well, I felt awful on it. And I had, I was very high and I felt dizzy and I felt almost sick to my stomach. And then people say, well, cannabis doesn't work. And it's like, but you used a, a pharmaceutical form that didn't actually mirror the whole plant. Oh, that's um, interesting. So that's why we may have a discrepancy between these kind of patient reported studies where people are using their form of cannabis versus, you know, going into a clinical trial where they're using a pharmaceutical form that's a, a very kind of narrow um, therapeutic agent. So. Mm. so you've had legal medicinal cannabis for some time in Canada now. How long? And talk us through what differences you've seen since the legalization of it. So we actually legalized medical cannabis in Canada in 2001. So a very long time ago, mm. and it was through repeated court cases by patients that finally they said that my liberty is at risk for using a medicine. And so um, it became available, but we've seen about five different iterations of the medical cannabis program since 2001. And we basically have seen this progression in terms of the types of products that are available. So we went from a, a flower that was almost like sawdust from, from one licensed producer to now we have, I think, over 150 licensed producers, probably 200 now, um, that offers everything from, from flour to oils, to tinctures, to edibles, to lotions, to creams. Uh, we now have suppositories, we have oral strips, so, and we see sprays. So like we have this enormous amount of new products that are available uh, through a whole host of licensed producers. Um, we also have seen a lot more flexibility in terms of people being able to register with multiple licensed producers so that if one product's not available here, they're able to easily register with another licensed producer that has it. Um, and they used to have, you know, you had to go see a doctor and a specialist and get approval. And now you're, you're able to see either a nurse practitioner or a physician that could be a general practitioner in order to get your authorization. 
What's been really interesting lately is that we legalized recreational cannabis. And since we did that in 2018, we've seen a dramatic drop in medical authorizations because people are saying, what's the point of making an appointment, going to talk to my doctor? That can be a really stigmatizing kind of conversation. Mm. Um, I can just go down to the store and, and pick up my medical cannabis there. Uh, and so we're seeing a lot less people um, going through the authorization process and instead going through the recreational cannabis market instead. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And so um, have has there been much uh, research in relation to medicinal cannabis as an alternative for opioids? Uh, and if so, how is that kind of playing out given some of the challenges we know that exists um, around opioid addiction? Yeah. You know, most of the research to date that's been published has been more kind of epidemiological. So looking at it from a population uh, based perspective. So looking at people that are using medical cannabis and then asking them questions about their opioid use or linking them to pharmacare data so we can see how much opioids are being prescribed. Uh, and what we've seen overwhelmingly, both in the US and Canada, is that there is a reduction in the amount of opioids being used by people that are using medical cannabis. And in fact, from a, a harm reduction perspective, uh, in Vancouver on the downtown east side, we saw another community advocacy group that started giving out cannabis uh, to people that are living on the downtown east side, which has a huge opioid uh, um, uh, epidemic. Uh, they did that to kind of prevent overdoses and to help people with their withdrawal symptoms. Uh, and they're starting to do research to see if that is, is a way of substituting it. There has been some research looking at opioids being used as a substitution, but that's been in the context of substance use mm -hmm. and not so much in the context of something like chronic pain. Mm. We really are just starting to see research. Uh, I'm part of a study that was just submitted looking at the role of medical cannabis and osteoarthritis. You know, we don't traditionally see opioids in that context, but we will be looking at whether it shifts their use of other pain medications that also come with sometimes detrimental side effects like, you know, GI issues, uh, things like that. So it feels like we're really just um, scratching the surface on where this might take, uh, you know, pain relief and um, patient care into the future. Um, given what you've said, I feel like, you know, we're, we're a little way behind here in Australia. But like I said, I, you know, there's certainly a lot of interest and a lot of curiosity and we're definitely seeing patients attempt to access and research um, medicinal, medicinal cannabis. And we have got some registered um, uh, providers, but it's really early days here. So it feels like, you know, you're 20 years down the path and it still feels like you're only scratching the surface. So it says a lot about where this research um, and this um, product could go you know it, it it takes a lot of time you know it's it's a very complex um medication you know it's a complex plant um and the other challenging part is is it acts on the endocannabinoid system which is a, a regulatory system of cannabinoid receptors that are everywhere in our body um, and as a consequence it could impact so many health conditions so, you know, we really, I think, almost need to kind of create a hierarchy of like, okay, where, where are we going to start? Mm. And then trying to figure out what's the appropriate product to use and what's the appropriate dose. You know, every disease, you know, could probably have, a, you know, 20, 30, 40 studies attached 
you know, to each condition to really fully understand, you know, what's a safe dose, what's most effective, what's the right blend of THC, CBD, all those other components. Um, you know, if you're looking for a research area, <laughs> there's going to be a million research questions that will follow you through your whole career. So we, mm. we are just um, scratching the surface. You know, the other thing that's really challenging is, you know, if you're looking at plant-based cannabis, you know, medical products, um, it's hard to get a patent on something that's a plant. Mm. So without the engagement of the pharmaceutical industry, it's going to be really challenging from a funding perspective to get all of these studies off the ground. And I think we're, we're finding that in Canada that we just don't have enough funds to do the amount of research that needs to be done. But and we're, we're is getting there. And are the pharmaceutical companies receptive to this or is there resistance? You know, I can imagine there's a bit of like old establishment type stuff that might sit in some of these new, more kind of modern or natural art therapies in some instances. I, I'm slightly cynical. I have to be <laughs> honest that I think there's a great deal of interest. Right. They're interested in finding the, the components. <laughs> And they're wanting to then turn it into a pharmaceutical. Yeah, so something right. like Epidiolex, which is approved by the FDA in the US for uh, Dravet syndrome, which is a severe epilepsy in children. Um, it's CBD, one of the cannabinoids. It's about $800 a bottle. And that can last some families only a month wow. um, or less. Um, and you can get CBD for a lot cheaper when it's coming from the plant versus coming as a pharmaceutical agent. So I, I think the pharma industry is very intrigued by it and they'll be looking at how to commercialize it. But then we go back to not having a natural product that's affordable, you know, and is not gonna break our, our healthcare system even further. So I, I'm, I'm a bit cynical. I, I see a lot of interest. I see a lot of pharma reps showing up at our cannabis conferences and it makes me slightly nervous. <laughs> mm, I think you're probably, um got your ears pricked for all the right reasons. <laughs> uh, so look, I know you're doing a new study called The Grass is Greener. Can you tell us a bit about that? So that's actually our long-term care study. Um, and that was, I'll be honest, um, my mom was in a long-term care facility and she um, broke her arm. So long-term care, is that like aged care? It's like aged care. Yeah. yeah okay. So, that's but, what we would but, call it here. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. So aged care. So she um, broke her arm from a fall <clears throat> and she also has sundown, she had sundowning um, from dementia and um, they had her on a fentanyl patch mm -hmm. and, and she was pretty snowed. And so part of me was like, have you guys considered, you know, using CBD um, more so for the sundowning or is there, you know, would there be any role for medical cannabis in this setting? It might, it might help her without all the other, you know, side effects of fentanyl. Um, and I was, I was told by one of the nurses, oh, don't, don't even mention it. Don't, e don't even tell the doctors that you're interested. Wow. So it was just shut down. And of course, the researcher me went, why is this happening? And what's going on? And so mum passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and they have a research grant competition from that long-term care facility because they're, they're a center of excellence. And I just was like, hmm, maybe we should be asking about the use of cannabis and what are the barriers to it in long-term care mm -hmm. and what are some of the challenges. So um, we're just wrapping up the study. So we've um, interviewed patients and family members that are interested in using cannabis or are using medical cannabis. 
Um, and we've also talked to uh, administrators as well as healthcare professionals about what they perceive to be some of the challenges around it. Uh, and we also did a survey looking at their attitudes and their knowledge. So we're just starting to analyze the data, but you know, as I mentioned, there seems to be a real culture uh, of not really supporting it. Um, the expectation is that it really has to be patient or family driven. Um, so it means that people that don't have that family support, you know, don't really have those conversations go anywhere. Mm. Um, and there's a real resistance to kind of initiating use. Uh, they typically will see it used by someone that was using it in the community and then is moving into the care setting. Um, but what's been fascinating is the nurses have really been reflective on the fact that this is people's homes, mm. you know, and we, we, we put forward that this is now their, their home. But we're being very, very restrictive about what they're allowed to do and not do within their home. Mm. And so the nurses have said, I think we need more education. We need more training. We need more awareness. And we need to, to shift the culture here so that there's more openness um, because they acknowledge that there's a lot of side effects from the other medicines that we're using that perhaps cannabis, you know, may be an alternative, uh, mm. especially if, if a medication's not working appropriately. So um, I'm kind of hoping that this is just almost an awareness building study that will get that conversation going uh, in long-term care. That's really interesting. Um, and given what you were saying about, you know, recreational use now in Canada and, you know, more widespread acceptance, um, I wonder if, you know, the market we talk about uh, will ultimately dictate some of these things. Because if someone's already using medicinal cannabis and then need to go into long-term care, maybe that's yeah. the difference between whether they pick facility A or facility B, right? Well, and I did say to someone, I said, you have pub night. You, you bring out, you know, a couple of beer and, and, you know, people can partake. And I said, are you seeing people saying, I'm rolling my joint? Mm -hmm. And they said, well, we've actually caught a few people, you know, <laughs> doing that. But it's a non-smoking facility and grounds and it's very large. So yeah, right. they literally have to go half a block. Which is a bit off which is a bit much. Yeah. And probably just impossible for some of the, the people in long-term care. Exactly. So, yeah. um, so it'll be interesting to see, especially like they're going to have a whole generation of us that have been used to recreational cannabis. And, yeah. and many, I, I've talked, we've talked to a lot of young people that are saying they're using it as a replacement for alcohol. Mm. They feel it's a safer choice. So it'll be interesting to see as they move into aged care, if more and more of them are going to be saying, hey, cannabis is part of my life, how is that going to be uh, mm. respected, right? So, Well, I hope your research works faster than that, but, you know, I feel <laughs> like too. that is going to be a reality they will have to confront. Well, thank you so much. I think this has just been really fascinating. It really, like I said, shows how much there is for us um, to kind of dig into here in Australia. It feels like we're only just starting to um, even begin to unpack what opportunities might exist for patients here. Do you think there's anything that we need to cover that we haven't covered? No, I just, I think I would just encourage, you know, your listeners, you know, nurses that, you know, they're there are some education programs out there that if you're interested in this, if you're getting a lot of questions, you know, from patients and families, you know, there are education programs out there that you can access and learn more about it. Um, I think nurses have a, have a powerful role as advocates. 
um, in terms of ensuring that evidence is reaching the bedside in terms of the decisions that are made um, and also advocating for patients and families, you know, that may have had some really great results in using this um, as a medicine. Um, and, you know, I always say, I think it's awesome in Canada that our nurse practitioners are part of the authorization process. So I, I don't Definitely. think that's the case in Australia. No. So that might be, uh, you know, an area for, for individuals that have that advanced practice training to, to look at expanding their practice. And I, I, I love seeing nurses at the forefront versus kind of, you know, following all the other health professions. And I think this is definitely a field where nurses uh, can be amazing leaders. So, so yeah. just thanks for the opportunity to, to share some of my thoughts and my stories. No, it's great. And look, if people want more information, do you have any suggestions about where they might find good quality resources? Sure. So, you know, one resource that I think a lot of nurses know about worldwide is the American uh, Cannabis Nurses Association. They have a, an annual conference. Um, they do have some resources and links on their website, um, and they really have been kind of cutting edge uh, in this field. Um, not to toot my own horn, but uh, I'm Deputy Director of the Canadian Consortium for the Investigation of Cannabinoids, DCIC. Uh, if you look that up uh, on the website, we have a link to an education program that I helped develop uh, that gives kind of a very basic overview of uh, medical cannabis, as well as recreational cannabis and the endocannabinoid system. Uh, and we do have a discount for nurses. So um, if that might be another evidence-based resource for people that are really kind of wanting to get a primer. Excellent. And we had our very first uh, medicinal cannabis uh, conference here in Australia this year. It was up in um, Queensland. Uh, and so we'll pop the links in all for all of those um, resources in the show notes. So if people want more details, hop in there and have a look um, because it's pretty interesting, I think, and there's lots to learn. Thank you so much for your time today, Linda. It's been fabulous chatting with you and uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Shay. It's been, it's been really fun. Thank you so much. We'll be right back after a quick word about the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association New Island Program. This is our own online CPD program with fantastic resources, a whole bunch of different clinical areas. Um, it's really worth checking out. Did you know the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association has a new online CPD portal? With over 200 free online CPD courses across a wide range of nursing and midwifery topics, plus the ability to track your learning, it's definitely worth checking out. If you're a New South Wales NMA member, just log in to the member portal, Member Central, to access this program. And if you're not yet a member, make sure you join today. That's it for this episode of The Shift with Shay. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Linda and I look forward to seeing you in a fortnight with more stories from the world of nursing and midwifery. If you haven't done so yet, be sure to subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you have an interesting story you'd like to share with us or you know someone who has a really interesting area of the profession, please get in touch and let us know by emailing us on the shift podcast at nswnma.asn.au. This podcast was recorded on Indigenous land. We acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening to this podcast. This land was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land.